Hello, listeners, and welcome to the very first bonus episode in Seeing and Believing History. I mean, I guess we've done some some Patreon episodes. Definitely the first bonus episode during my tenure as a co-host. I don't know about you and Wade necessarily, but I mean, we, we did the Patreon episodes, but this is the first one where you know it's it's for all the listeners out there. Um, but it's also you know it's not going to be quite as regimented as as the usual you know weekly episodes. We're kind of going to be a little bit more laid back, more casual, mm-hmm. um, which isn't to say that we are going to just, you know, be carefree about this because it's serious business what we're about to talk about here. We're going to be talking about our most anticipated movies of the upcoming fall and winter and that's that's a big subject. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's something that I don't know, there's so many movies, Kevin. It's very hard to keep track of them all. I hear there are a lot of movies, yeah. There there tends to be quite a few and just narrowing down my list to like a much more manageable size, I thought was incredibly difficult. I don't know about you. I have a private letterboxed list that has 15 movies on it. I wanted to include all of them. We're only doing our top five. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, winnowing it down to those five was, was, was tough. Yeah, I had to make some tough calls. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know grain of salt, I guess my most anticipated is probably going to be jumping around. I, I really, really, really wanted to get Avatar 2 onto this list, and I couldn't justify it, and maybe we can unpack that at another time. I mean, when you sent me your top five, I was a little surprised that Avatar 2 wasn't on there, so mm. I'm interested to, maybe when we get to our honorable mentions, because I'm sure it's on there, right? Yeah, it definitely the, the, is. Maybe we can hear a little bit more about that. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's dive in. So um, were there, before we do, um, mm. were, were there any sort of... Uh, things that you it, rubrics that you imposed to sort of movies that made the cutoff like how, how did they get onto the top five was there anything you did to sort of like make those hard decisions um am i unequivocally excited about it and do i have any misgivings about that director's previous work and if the answer is i'm excited about it and i have no misgivings about the director's previous work it made the cut there were a few other movies that i'm intrigued by but i'm just i'm not entirely sure it's been hit or miss with me for a few of these so um sam mendy's empire of light was one that i was intrigued by but i also i don't really jive with him all the time necessarily Mm -hmm. so that one didn't quite make the list yeah. yeah. Well, uh, let's let's uh, jump in then with our with your number five. Uh, what's what did make your list? Like, what was the first one to make the cutoff? Um, it's one that I don't know a ton about, so maybe misplaced faith. But I have faith in Damien Chazelle, and I have faith in his ability to tell a very good story. So I am interested in Babylon, which is. A movie that, like, we really haven't heard a ton about other than the runtime is ridiculously long and it's set in Hollywood in the 1920s during the transition from silent films to talkies. But Damien Chazelle, I think, is a very good storyteller and a very sensitive storyteller. And based on what he did with First Man alone, I'm sold. I'm interested. I, I'm curious about this one as as well, not least because I want to see a movie about about. Hollywood that maybe maybe there's a clue in that title Babylon. <laughs> you know, this is pre-Hayes Code. You know, it's, it's right kind of uh, in the 20s. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, us getting maybe kind of a, a Hollywood similar to the one in LA Confidential where there's a little bit more of a seedy underbelly kind of thing going on. I, I, I don't know about it, but I'm, I'm interested. I have a sneaking suspicion that it has something to do with the book Hollywood Babylon, which was written by Kenneth Anger, um, which... 
Most of that book was debunked by Karina Longworth in one season of You Must Remember This, which is a great <laughs> podcast. And if you're into Hollywood history at all, probably worth listening to. Um, but at the same time, if Damien Chazelle is adapting Hollywood Babylon, I want in on that. That sounds very interesting. I mean, I remember the first time uh, I saw Whiplash in, in the theater, I walked out of that I walked out of that movie theater on a high. Oh, yeah. It was just so propulsive, so stylish, so just everything about popped so well. So for him to really dig in deep on the glitz of old school Hollywood, uh, that's a match made in heaven. Did La La Land work for you? I liked La La Land. Okay, I, I think it's, it's kind of, I've cooled on it over time, but I still appreciate it. And I really like his visual sense in it. Mm. Um, so I I think that he can probably bring that same uh, energy to Babylon. First man kind of left me a little cold, so I'm I'm hoping to see him bounce back a little bit from that one. Justice for First Man. I think that's my favorite movie of his. So, wow. Yeah, I, I adore First Man. We will have to talk about that another time for sure. Okay. I'm curious to know what your number five pick is. Okay, so uh, when I was kind of windowing down my list, I, I came to, when I was had to make the hard decisions, I was like, okay, which are the ones that I'm just are the ones that are sort of like opening night, I'm there. I have to see it. Or, you know, when it first hits a streaming service, I just, I have to watch it because I just can't wait to see what is done with this movie. Mm. And with this one, uh, for my number five, I don't know if it's going to be good. This is uh, Noah Baumbach's uh, adaptation of Don DeLillo's White Noise for Netflix. And... They don't look scared in the Crown Victoria. Yeah, they're laughing. These guys aren't laughing. Where? In the country square. What does it matter what they're doing in other cars? I want to know how scared I should be. I honestly don't know if that's going to work. I love White Noise. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant novel. I don't know if it is going to work at all (laughs) as a movie. I have faith in Noah Baumbach's abilities, however. I love Adam Driver. I love Greta Gerwig. I'm so glad to see her uh, in front of the camera again. I Mm. think she's a really magnetic performer. I don't know if it's going to be good. It's definitely going to be interesting, though, because you can't make an... I I can't imagine making an uninteresting movie out of White Noise. I can imagine making a bad one, but an uninteresting one? Mm, Doubtful. The novel White Noise is a book that I need to add to my to-read list because I've never read it. So that's one that I feel like I want to catch up on that before this hits theaters. But I'm completely on board with the cast here. You said Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig. I mean, you've also got Jodie Turner-Smith, Don Cheadle, and Andre 3000 in here. I have no idea who any of these people are playing, and I'm still in just based on that cast list. I mean, I've read the novel, and I don't know who some of those people are playing. <laughs> so, I mean, needless to say, there's a lot of question marks here, but, uh, I mean, Noah Baumbach's marriage story was really good, and I'm kind of interested to see what may be the last of the really big auteur-driven Netflix movies, mm-hmm. given their their newer direction they're heading kind of a more of a less of a focus on big or tour driven projects so i, I want to see bombach really waste netflix's money here on on something either grand and great or a, a huge debacle but ought to be an interesting watch either way if it's grand and great i would argue it's not a waste it's money well spent and he might as well go out with a bang that's true that's true <laughs> uh so what do you got for your number four so number four is one called Don't Worry Darling, directed by Olivia Wilde. I'm 
so sorry I forgot to tell you, but you're not feeling very well. And the only way to cure it is if we stay home all day and I tend to you and kiss you and cook for you. Bye. Security level, yellow. All residents safe and accounted for. Victory is safe and secure. Here you can live the life you deserve. We can all live the life... Which is a movie I've seen a lot of trailers for. And I don't know if I'm curious about it because I've seen a lot of trailers or if I've just noticed the trailers because I'm very curious about the subject matter of this movie. So Florence Pugh plays a 1950s housewife who is married to Harry Styles, of all people. And they live in sort of a utopian community in the middle of the desert. And everything isn't really exactly what it seems. So another movie with probably a really strong style sensibility, at least based on what I've seen in the trailers and the first looks. Um, I loved Olivia Wilde as a director in Booksmart. I really liked Booksmart the year that that came out. So I'm interested to see what she does with a tonally very different story. Um, And also it looks like Chris Pine is playing the villain. And I am delighted to see Chris Pine back on the silver screen. Have you seen Z for Zechariah? I have not. So Chris Pine, I... I can't say whether or not he plays a villain in that because that might constitute a spoiler. Okay. But he plays a person who is a little slippery and difficult to read. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the ideal territory for Chris Pine. I think he makes a fantastic... uh, unsettling presence in the film like he's he's got you know those leading man looks and he can he can play charming but i think he's best used as somebody who where those icy blue eyes might be hiding something and so i'm really interested to see see him in don't worry darling that was one of the ones that just barely missed the cutoff for me oh i'm i'm so excited about it um so what's something that did make that cutoff for you on your number four so um james gray is a director that i've really come to appreciate with his last couple of movies um ad astra is kind of a mess but it's a mess that i really am glad exists um i just i think he's got this incredible visual sense the lost city of zed is one was one of my favorite films of that year i so good thought it was fantastic and uh his upcoming film armageddon time which is slated for release at the beginning of november is looking to be like a very personal story for it. The United States stands for an idea whose time is now. Ronald Reagan will win tonight. What a schmuck. (laughs) I think I want to be an artist when I grow up. You're going to be an artist if you want to be. Nothing's going to stop you. You're going to college. He'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right. I really like your stickers. My stepbrother gave them to me. He's in the Air Force. That's so cool. Well, you're not to associate with him again. What do you mean? Why? I think you know what I mean. It's kind of a, a retelling of uh, his time growing up in, in the Bronx, I think, or at least in, in New York City. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen The Immigrant, you know that he's so good at drawing out the character of, of New York City. And I'm not a New Yorker. I don't have – I'm not – strongly invested in portrayals of new york city on screen but i'm strongly invested in james gray's portrayals of just about anything on screen Mm -hmm. so i am just 
Uh, very interested in seeing what he does with Armageddon time. It's got a great cast. Anthony Hopkins is in it. Uh, and after seeing Anthony Hopkins in the father, oh my gosh. I, I'm, I'm back on board the Hopkins train. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't wait. James Gray does a really good job with sense of place, but I think he also is very good at drawing out interesting portraits of masculinity, mm. which is really hard to do because I think so many movies are just about men being dudes and they're not interested in exploring the intricacies of that. And I think James Gray does that really, really well. He does it beautifully in Lost City of Zed. I think he also does it really well in Ad Astra. I, I will also take exception with you about Ad Astra. I'm just about sad men in space. And I don't think we're getting any sad men in space movies this fall, which kind of bums me out. So at the very least, we can get another James Gray movie. Well, no no sad men in space makes for a sad Sarah on Earth, I, I guess. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I'll, I'll hasten to say, I like Ad Astra. I really mm-hmm. do. I am under no illusions, though, that I, I don't think that it holds together as tightly as something like The Lost City of Zed. Not necessarily a, okay. a a criticism so much as an observation that it's not a perfect movie, mm-hmm. but it's a very good movie, and okay. I like it a lot. I will take that. I will I will take that amendment. That okay, works I'm, for I'm me. glad we were able to, <laughs> to smooth that over. <laughs> what do you got at your number three spot? So my number three is actually a sequel, but it's a sequel to Ryan Johnson's great Knives Out. So my number three is Glass Onion, which... Again, stacked casts. I feel like that's probably just going to be the theme of the movies that I am interested in for the rest of the year. Um, but this one is utterly bonkers. So you have Ethan Hawke, Daniel Craig, Edward Norton, Catherine Hahn, Dave Batista, Kate Hudson, Janelle Monet, Leslie Odom Jr., um, Sign me up. I, th- I mean, just throw all of those people into a room together and I will watch it. But throw all of those people into a room together with Ryan Johnson writing the script. And, and I know I'm going to have a fun time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I am unapologetic about being kind of bearish on the idea of just sequels and franchises. Like, mm-hmm. not, not that excited about it. I liked Knives Out. I don't think that Knives Out was screaming out for a sequel. I don't have a whole lot of interest in the Benoit Blanc (laughs) cinematic universe. That said, I'm not exactly complaining about it existing. And Ryan Johnson, I think is just, if anyone, if I would go to see anybody build a franchise, it would be him. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last Jedi was maybe the last truly interesting franchise movie that I saw. Like, I, I think he does a lot of really interesting stuff. I think he's a great writer. He's a dynamite director. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be there opening night for Glass Onion for sure. Yeah, I think if I did have to choose between an original Ryan Johnson and a sequel Ryan Johnson, I would definitely take the original like any time. Again, Brick as a movie that I think we've talked about on the podcast before. Brick is a perfect movie, mm-hmm. even as it's like kind of shaggy and very early. Um, but I feel like Ryan Johnson's just starting to come into his own and I'm really excited to see him continue to sharpen his skills as, as he works through. Is this his first direct sequel to anything that he's done? I think it is. Yeah. 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 I'm excited for that. Yeah. I mean, he has, he has yet to make a, a bad movie or even a mediocre movie. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm on board for, for that. Uh, all my misgivings about sequels, notwithstanding, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll watch, I'll follow Ryan Johnson anywhere. 
Yeah, same. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, what's your number three? So uh, my number three is a movie from Darren Aronofsky, who, in my opinion, is another director who has not made a bad movie. Ooh. Um, and this is uh, his film, The Whale. And the reason I'm excited about this is back in 2008, he made The Wrestler, which was one of the best films of that year. Um, and it featured a performance from Mickey Rourke, He'd gone from being sort of this this extremely, you know, this rising star, very young, very good looking, very exciting actor, kind of like a kind of a Brando thing going on. He was mm -hmm. huge. And then it kind of went awry for him. And Aronofsky uh, brought him back for The Wrestler. And it was just sort of it was almost like a second star making performance. Um, just he was older. He looked so much different. And yet Aronofsky knew how to use that. Uh, in really interesting ways to tell an interesting story, but also kind of explore uh, the character he was playing in a way that he couldn't have if somebody other than Rourke was in the in the role. Mm -hmm. So with the whale, it looks like he might be doing something similar, except with Brendan Fraser mm -hmm. in in that in that second star making role. And I'm really interested in this. I think Fraser's really kind of entering a new interesting new phase of his career as well in in uh no sudden moves with uh students from steven soderbergh he played kind of a minor role in that and was mm -hmm. very good in it loved him in that and this is a film that's kind of about a uh a very overweight man and kind of like uh essentially him coming to terms with his place in the world and what his life should look like uh, going forward. And uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm here for Aronofsky. I think he's a tremendous director. I'm here for Brendan Fraser. I think he's an underrated actor. Hmm. And I'm really excited to see what they do together. I'm going to have to admit that I really didn't appreciate Brendan Fraser back when he was in his prime. Um, and he was kind of an actor that I didn't really take very seriously until I sat down and rewatched The Mummy like a few years ago mm -hmm. and realized just how great and mm -hmm. charming he is in that. Um, also loved him in No Sudden Move. I'm also curious about the rest of the casting for this movie because Sadie Sink plays his daughter. And Sadie Sink is one of the best things about a TV show that I don't particularly love, but that seems to be quite popular. And that's Stranger Things. Yeah, man. You know, Stranger, like, CD Sync, I think, is really let down by the writing in Stranger Things. Mm -hmm. I, I I watched the sec or the season that she was in. I think it was the third season that that she made her debut, or was it the second season? It was she, the second season. She's in the second, third, and fourth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was she was fine the second season. In the third season, I was like, why don't I like her? She's not giving a bad performance. I think it's just I kind of just fell off the wagon <laughs> with <laughs> with Stranger Things, but I'm interested to see her kind of develop her career and kind of move beyond that into much more interesting roles. And I mean, Aronofsky is a great director if you want to do something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it feels like she's been kind of stuck in the Netflix mold because she did. Um, yeah. It'll be good to see her kind of break out of the Netflix mold too, because she did fear street, the trilogy for Netflix as well, but I honestly haven't seen her in anything else. I don't think here's also where I make an admission. The only Darren Aronofsky movie I have seen is mother whoa yeah oh man which i loved like i genuinely loved mother and i know that that's a very divisive movie but i was on mm -hmm. board with it i have been told forever that i would love the fountain i think i have a decent amount of that film's score on my writing playlist and i just haven't gotten around to watching it i think you'll really like aronofsky's other movies he's a director that just takes really big swings i mean mm. you saw mother you know oh yeah <laughs> um all of his movies kind of 
are similar in their ambition and just their willingness to take risks. And he, all of he, he makes it work in all of them. You'll, I think you'll like the wrestler, uh, especially given your love of Bruce Springsteen. He, mm-hmm. Bruce Springsteen has a great original song that was written for that film. Um, but I mean, like, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll add Aronofsky movies into the watch list rotation because yeah. I think you'll really appreciate what he's up to. I'm definitely on board with that. I think I've been, um, intimidated by the reputation for Requiem for a Dream, which is why I just haven't gotten around to the rest of them. And I need to just get over that block, I think. I mean, Requiem for a Dream is, it's a tough sit, but it's also very good. Mm. I don't know that I'd recommend, like, I might not recommend it for a watch list segment because I'm not sure I want to rewatch it. That's fair. <laughs> but that's no slight on the film itself. It's just, it's a tough sit. <laughs> it's one I'll add to my other watch list, the personal watch list, and maybe eventually I'll get around to it. Uh, what do you got for your number two? So my number two is one that may actually come out right around the same time that this episode drops. Um, but it is Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. I just want to clarify some things before we before we get started. Every woman is not built for the great responsibility of being a first lady. Pastor Lee Curtis Childs faces allegations of misconduct. His megachurch may never be the same. Lee Curtis and I, we're gonna get to the other side. Here you Yeah, with the big old microphone. Come in closer, son. You gonna see what all the fuss is about. Showtime. What's up? Fresh is our turn, baby. Lee Curtis is a talent, a star. Oh, boy. Uh, we can edit around that, right? This is going to chronicle the ultimate comeback. I'm Rocky up in this fight. Rocky didn't win. But he did win in Rocky, too. Lord, baby, how many times I got to tell you, get past the first movie? That was all set up. He is just so wrong. He needs someone to harness it all. Oh, bless your heart. I'm sure plenty of the old congregation will come right on back through good old Wanda the Greater Path's door. <laughs> you have a blessed one. Oh, my goodness. And you have a blessed which is a movie about the first lady and pastor of a Southern Baptist megachurch trying to crawl their way out of a scandal. And um, I was sold on this movie the moment that I saw who the first lady was played by, and it's, it's Regina Hall. Um, she's incredibly funny. This movie is billed as a comedy that's kind of undercutting a lot of that megachurch sort of culture and understanding in a way that just makes me think like, This could be very funny. It could be very scathing. Either way, it's going to be interesting. And I'm on board for that based on Regina Hall in particular. Um, I loved her in Support the Girls back in 2018, largely because she was able to carry a role that was very sober and also very funny at the same time. And she played it completely understated. And I mean, she's known for the scary movie movies mostly, um, where she's playing a very over-the-top character. But I think she's capable of playing both very funny and understated at the same time. And I think if this movie can get the balance just right, I'm definitely going to be on board with it. I mean, and uh, that's not even getting into Sterling K. Brown being the uh, being the co-lead. Yes. I love Sterling K. Brown. I think he's just been tremendous in literally everything I've, I've seen him in. And like you, I'm on board with a, a movie like, I don't know, like I, there's only so much you can tell from a trailer. Mm-hmm. But having watched a trailer, it feels like the satire of a certain brand of Christianity that's present in this film it seems more on target 
than maybe some other uh, would-be satires of uh, evangelical subcultures. Mm. And I, I don't know, it, it's, it's just, it seems like it speaks the language a little bit more fluently than some of these other ones. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really curious about to see if it, if it, if the promise of the trailer is held up by the, the movie as a whole. There's a very good exchange in the trailer where two characters exchange bless your hearts and Regina Hall's character misses the cue just a little bit and she says it a little bit too late. And I think at that moment I was I was completely sold because I knew that this movie understood what bless your heart actually means and then also what happens if you don't get it to land quite properly. So um, very much looking forward to that movie. Kevin, what's your number two? So when I was making my list... I, I was kind of doing doing my research about what was coming out in the next few months, and I had open like this notepad document on my computer, kind of like making notes to myself. And when I found out about the existence of the movie that's at my number two spot, the the notes that I had in my notepad were just uh, a few names, and then just ah, <laughs> I, I, I screamed into a notepad document because I was so excited about it. So the film that I've got my number two is Oliver Hermanus's Living. And I'm excited about it and screamed into a notepad document because it, uh, the screenplay is by Kazuo Ishiguro, who is a Nobel, Nobel Prize winning Kazuo Ishiguro and one of my favorite living novelists. I think I just adore everything he does. But it's also a, an English language remake of the Akira Kurosawa film, Ikiru. Mm. And that is one heck of a pedigree. And normally I'm not too much on board with, you know, English language remakes of foreign language masterpieces. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm making an exception for this one just because I have that much faith in Ishiguro and also in Bill Nye, who is playing the role that Takashi Shimura originated in Ikiru. Mm. I mean, I I think Nye's or again he he's he's a great actor. Lots of people know he's a great actor. I don't know that the full measure of his greatness is is appreciated enough, and I'm really excited to see him in this in this story. Sounds like you're excited for him to get like a showcase that he definitely deserves. Um, I feel like if I were asked to make a movie in a lab that would appeal to Kevin. <laughs> It would have to be a Kurosawa remake written by Kazuo Ishiguro. So I'm so delighted that this is on your list. I feel like I would have been disappointed if it wasn't. Am I making this up or is this also a musical or does it have musical elements? Uh, I am purposely not reading too much about it because I I really want to go. I don't want to go into it with too many expectations because it's already got sky high expectations (laughs) for me, uh, as you can probably tell. But... I I'm just I'm so interested on what they're doing with this story to differentiate it from what is arguably one of the greatest Japanese movies ever made. It's a lot. And I'm really excited to see what happens. I think I, I read somewhere that someone said once that Kazuo Ishiguro is one of our uh the English language's foremost poets of loss. Mm. And I can't imagine a better person trying to adapt a masterpiece like Akiru than that. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. I'm super excited to see it. And we're going to have to add another movie to the watch list because I have never seen Akiru either. We may have to pair living in Akiru and then just really bum everybody out come Christmas time. Wow. I, I mean, we'll, we'll see. You're definitely going to be watching Akiru at some point uh, during your tenure as co-host. It, it's definitely going to need to happen. Absolutely. So uh, we, we've counted down all the way to number one 
What is your number one most anticipated movie that's coming out in the next few months? It's Decision to Leave by Park Chan-wook, um, which is technically already out because it's been out in South Korea since May, I think, but it's coming out uh, October 14th of this year here in the United States. And it's about a detective investigating a man's death um, who meets that man's wife and then falls in love with her. And I'm very curious to see how director Park is going to um, walk that balance of sort of thriller and romance. It looks a little, I don't know, almost woozy in places, I think, in the trailer, but not in a woozy of I've lost control of the situation. It's a woozy of this character has lost control of the situation. And I think that that's a very important distinction. I'm really curious about this one. I don't know much else about it other than the trailer, which I literally just watched today and that synopsis. But it sounds like a fascinating story. It sounds like a story that's told in a way that I probably have never seen before. And I'm I'm interested in that for sure. Pak Chanuk is is one of those directors that he... This was my number six, and it was so hard for me to not include on my top five <laughs> list because I, I I I love his films, and I think woozy is a really interesting and apt descriptor for his films because it does feel like there his characters. I, I just think about the the way I felt watching Old Boy for the first time, hmm. or the way that the handmaiden kept pulling the rug out from under me over and over and over again, <laughs> and and just thinking about. The, the weird sense of propulsive disorientation, like where, where the movie is barreling towards something crazy and horrible and unimaginable, hmm. and yet you're enjoying every minute of it because Pak Chanuk's stylistic command is so sure like he he's so he's such an assured director mm-hmm. and I'm really excited to I mean I'm always excited to see any new movie from him. Um, but I'm I, I'm excited to see this premise kind of do the same thing to me again. <laughs> Definitely, whatever it is. Yeah, I'm no expert on South Korean cinema, but what little I know about it is that the masters are very good at switching genre at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very excited to watch a master do that between two very different genres: thriller and romance. And if he can pull this off. I don't know. I'll be a fan for life. Yeah. Well, I, I'm looking forward to that one uh, as well. Like, so, like I said, it was hard to not include it on my list. So that one was your number six. I'm curious to know what made the cut and what ended up being your number one. So my number one is uh, God's Creatures. Uh, this is directed by Anna Rose Homer and Sayola Davis. The wind the past few weeks. Keeping me awake every night. The thunder of paths getting in. Suppose every house around here has the same ghosts. You wonder how they'd tell them all apart if they came back. Mom? Different as me. On end sometimes. Do you reckon? Mother knows. It's exactly like it was back in the day. So long ago. I wouldn't get hung up on it if I were you. Try to leave a place. Only to find it following you. 
and they they've worked together before. Uh, they were screenwriting partners on Holmer's previous film, The Fits, Great which movie. one of my favorites of 2015. I think it's absolutely tremendous, and kind of one of those bolt from the blue movies. Like, where did where has this director been? Like, it, it it seemed at least to me to come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and I I liked it a lot. I respected it a lot. It's just so stylistically interesting and told such a unique original story. And so I'm really excited to see that a follow-up to that film starring the great Emily Watson. And it's got one of these stories that, again, is sort of, if you know me, kind of seems like it was made in the lab to appeal to me. It's a, it's a move. It's a story about uh, lies and uh, what, the reasons that people tell them and whether there's any such thing as a harmless lie, hmm. uh, moral compromise like that. That's that kind of theme is catnip for me i just i love stories about that and i'm really interested to see holmer and davis take that on with an actor of emily watson's caliber uh, and bring that same sort of bolt from the blue verve that was in the fits yeah yeah i this is a movie that i wasn't aware of until you mentioned it like until you brought it up loved the fits very excited to see what anna rolls homework what Anna Rose Homer gets up to with this one. And I think The Fitz is one of those movies that also has a a spectacular sense of place, Mm. as well as a very strong sense of who its characters are. And God's Creatures feels like it's going to be another one of those like very atmospheric, very specific time and place. I believe it's set in a fishing village in Ireland. Mm. And... That, I mean, talk about Kevin Catnip, Sarah Catnip is is remote fishing villages and people who live there <laughs> as well. So um, this one is also very high on my own anticipated list. Um, it's one that I'm extremely curious about. And I, I'm really excited to see what she does with this movie and then also with the rest of her career to come. Yeah, she's an exciting talent to watch for sure. Mm-hmm. So that's our, our, our five favorite ones. But obviously... It was tough to cut it down to just five. Mm-hmm. Were there any movies that just were so on the bubble you wanted to include them, but you weren't able to? What are some of your honorable mentions? So I have a few. Um, Moon Age Daydream, the documentary about David Bowie. After Sun, um, Barbarian is one that I'm curious about, but also very scared of. Also based on, on the trailer, that's a, a horror movie about a woman who shows up at an Airbnb and then... Um, finds more than she bargained for um black panther wakanda forever speaking of franchise movies i'm genuinely curious to see what they're going to do with this one i'm a little nervous about just marvel and marvel phase four as a whole which is why it didn't quite make my list but at the very least we have ryan coogler directing another marvel movie so i'm I'm interested in that and then the other franchise movie that made my list is avatar 2 um, which is probably the movie that I have thought about the most that's coming out this fall and winter. I'm not ashamed of that, but I haven't fully unpacked it yet either. Okay, so, so sell me on the Avatar franchise because oh I'm not sold. But if anyone can sell me on something like this, I feel like you're you're the one to do it. So, so pitch me on it. Like, well, what what about Avatar two? Are you looking forward to? That's the so much. wild thing is I'm not sold on the Avatar franchise either. Um, I'm intrigued for. I'm intrigued with it on a linguistic level because I was a linguistic student. They wrote a language for this entire movie. So part of that is just listening to what they did with that. But I think it's fascinating that James Cameron has gone and made, at least in the first Avatar, an ostensibly anti-colonialist movie that hasn't really unpacked what it actually means to be anti-colonialist. And so it's a very frustrating movie. I think it looks incredible and I like the world building. 
I don't think that the effects have held up necessarily in the last 10 years, but I'm curious to see where he's going to push them in this one. And also Sigourney Weaver is cast as a character who is in universe like 14 years old. And that alone is enough to pique my curiosity. So I don't know that that's going to sell anybody on Avatar 2, but also <laughs> I'm, I'm expecting it to make a boatload of money and I don't need to sell anybody on it. I mean, part of it is also like, it doesn't feel real to me. We've been hearing about a sequel to Avatar for a decade now. Yeah. Uh, when, when did it come out? 2010? 20, uh, 2009. 2009. Mm -hmm. So that was 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy to me that we've been talking, we've been hearing about James Cameron making the sequel for that long. I mean, so much has changed in those 13 years. To be perfectly fair, the original Avatar was announced in 1993, and then it took him that long to develop the technology to be able to make it, too. <laughs> so the man is the man is okay with an extended timeline, I think. I mean, and, and I'll also say this, uh, that James Cameron is one of those directors, like, I kind of take him for granted, and then I watch a movie that kind of tries to do what James Cameron does so effortlessly and mm -hmm. just falls on its face trying to do it. And I remember he's actually really good at what he does. So maybe I should give it the benefit. Of Excellent. I will see you at the theater for Avatar 2. <laughs> what about you? Are there any movies that didn't quite make the cut that you were hoping to at least give honorable mention to? Yeah, well, so so you, we already talked about Decision to Leave and Glass Onion. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really interested in Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inishirin. Ooh. So uh, I love In Bruges. I think it's just a tremendous, tremendous movie. Um, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson reunite for the Banshees of Inisherin, so that's one big reason. Mm -hmm. I'm also excited because it, it, it sees McDonough returning to his native Ireland. And, uh, you know, Three Billboards Outside Billings, Missouri has maybe justly gotten a lot of flack for, uh, the way it approached social issues. But I think a lot of, sorry. Uh, Ebbings, Missouri. Oh, did I? I said, you Billings, said Billings, Missouri. Okay, yeah. let me back up. Let me back up. So his film Three Billboards Outside Ebbings, Missouri uh, came in for some justified criticism about the way it engaged with social issues. And I think part of that is McDonough's not American. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he kind of was coming into maybe a milieu that he didn't fully understand. So I'm excited to see him go into uh, go, go back to his native Ireland and kind of like be in uh, a setting that is much more uh, comfortable with, I guess. Because yeah. I think N. Brew shows that he is a, a dynamite writer and director uh, when he's firing on all cylinders. So In Bruges, another movie I have not seen. Three Billboards was one where I walked out of the theater feeling really good about it. Mm -hmm. And then the more criticisms I heard of it, the more I was like, yeah, no, maybe, maybe not. So I definitely got swayed by other people's reads of that movie. That wasn't one where I came away feeling bad about it. But the more I think about it, the more of a bad taste I have about it. I mean, I, I, I think maybe some of the criticisms of it were harsher than necessary hmm. but i i think that there are some fair criticisms to be made of it and i think a lot of it was a function of mcdonough just not really fully understanding a lot of the issues that the film was purporting to grapple with so we'll we'll see how uh the banshees of inishirin does interested obviously in the fablemans because when there's a new spielberg movie you're interested in it yes um he's interest he's entering the fifth decade of his career now that's crazy to think about and uh, the Fablemans kind of looks like it might be his The Irishman, which is, you know, an extremely personal late career film from one of America's foremost filmmaking talents. 
uh, returns to one of the themes that has recurred again and again over the course of his career Mm -hmm. with Scorsese was obviously uh, gangster uh, tropes with Spielberg. It's uh, family drama and, and difficulties. Uh, So I'm really curious to just see him dig into that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, Sarah Polly is a director that I feel like she should be making more films than she gets to make. Um, but she's coming back uh, this fall with Women Talking. It's a story about a uh, Mennonite community that's having to grapple with uh, sexual abuse issues. And it primarily consists of a bunch of women in that community up in a hayloft in a barn, I believe, mm-hmm. just talking, as the title suggests. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think Polly is just a really interesting director i think she's very good at working within limitations i think story stories we tell this documentary about her own family history was just so wonderful and kind of surprised you even though the premise seemed so simple Mm. and so i'm interested to see her come back to feature filmmaking and uh do something similar with that and this also just has a really good cast as well. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm a little like nervous about the one. I think that's mostly just based around the, the subject matter. I feel like every Oscar season, you get a few big issue movies along those lines. We're going to get a couple of others. Like um, she said, I believe about the Harvey Weinstein scandal. I'm not looking forward to that movie mm-hmm. at all. Um, I do think that Sarah Polly has the chops to make a good movie and a good piece of art out of something like this. So I, I am cautiously optimistic about it but i don't know there there's a series of movies that tend to come out around fall winter christmas time in a bid for an oscar and usually it's it's a big issue movie like this and then there's also usually an alzheimer's story and a war story and i don't look forward to any of those three necessarily so this is one where i'll watch it but i'm a little nervous about it yeah another tough sit maybe Mm mm-hmm well, uh, that is our, our first bonus episode on the books. Um, we're really excited, obviously, about all these movies, mm-hmm. uh, but we're also interested to know what you listeners, uh, what you're looking forward to over the next few months. Like we said, there are a lot of movies coming out. We weren't able to talk about anywhere close to all of them. And so we're, I'm really curious to know uh, if there's any that we missed, mm-hmm. any that we aren't quite giving the due that you feel we should be giving it uh <laughs> definitely like let us sound off in uh, over email or on twitter let us have it we can take it and we're really interested to hear your thoughts yeah tell tell kevin that he should have put avatar 2 at the top of his list because that is really <laughs> where it where it should be on all of ours i think telling kevin that he's wrong about something is a time honored time treasured uh seeing and believing pastime so i hope you'll take advantage of the opportunity here uh but that'll do it for this week's episode seeing and believing is brought to you by the christ pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm your host kevin McClinathan. i'm your co-host sarah welch larson and thank you for listening to this bonus episode of seeing and believing You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.